Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another podcast interview for Moving to Live. This time we are with our second personal trainer. This is somebody that I told him way back uh, over six months ago, I want to interview you. And then life took place and it was a little bit difficult time hooking up with him, partially through me, partially with his busy schedule because he's going to tell us a little bit about a book contract and a book that is coming out in early next year. And just life gets in the way of things. So I am really happy and excited today to be with Mark Nutting. I think I've known Mark either by name or in person for at least 10 or 15 years. And it seems like every NSCA or other personal training or strength coach conference I go to, I at least see him in passing. And I knew that he was somebody I wanted to have on the interview because I think it was the 2016 uh, NSCA National Conference he gave a talk on parkour. And whereas you think of young people running around all over the place, he really made it presentable and showed that movement is for anybody of all ages. And I may be wrong on the exact age, but I think in the presentation, he mentioned that his oldest participant was in his late 70s or early 80s. So Mark, I know you have a busy schedule. Thank you for taking the time to talk to Moving to Live. Well, thank you for having me, Ben. And one of the advantages I have with uh, moving to live interviews is I get to have the people fill out a very short questionnaire, so I have at least a baseline to start from. I know right now you have a relatively new personal training business in Eastern Pennsylvania, Jiva uh, Fitness. Is that the correct name? Yes, it is. And I know that it was a long ride to get there before then, so... I know movement is part of what makes your life complete, and I know I pick people who do a lot of movement in their lives and really emphasize it, and I think you exemplify it. Where did you start out? Were you an athlete in high school? Did you know, uh, have a personal training session in high school and know this is what I want to do for a career, or how did you start out and realize that this was a career that you wanted to be in? 
Well, um, back in my day, which is a way I, I practice a lot of things, uh, the uh, personal training didn't even exist back then. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not shy to admit that I'll, I turned 60 this year. So, the, you know, back uh, as a kid, uh, I was an athlete. I played football, ran track, uh, basketball for a while, but went on to play football through college. In college, uh, I actually started out as a chemistry major and uh, was became disenchanted with uh, the program I was in and went to something else I loved and looked at uh, physical education, although I was never really sold on the idea of teaching. I knew it was always a struggle for uh, physical educators to get the pr program you know, respected. It was always one of the first one cuts, first ones cut out of a school system. It's still one of those that, you know, is a constant battle to get enough physical education. But what I got into was they actually created a science concentration for the few of us that were really more interested in the application of the science end of things. Um, and I ended up working in my first job and that was really working in an exercise science or human performance laboratory for three years there at the university where we did uh we did maximal stress tests we worked with uh we did cardiac rehab um and the story i, I typically tell or most often tell because um, as i recall this was the sort of the turning point for me was i was teaching cardiac rehab class for those three years and the year one I had a lady come to me, come up to me after six months. She had she had been working with me, and she had a, uh, a heart attack when she was about seventy two, and started the cardiac rehab program. Um, and after about six months, she was she came up to me and goes, "Mark, I you know, I was thinking about doing more activity, and what what do you think about me, you know, getting a stationary bike for at home?" Well, of course, you know, somebody in their 70s who has discovered movement and wants to move more. Cool. This is great. Uh, so she started that. And then she, you know, another probably about, about a year down the road, she came up to me and, and said, you know, I, I never learned how to swim. And I was just thinking about taking swimming lessons. And so, again, now now mid 70s, she wants to, for the first time, take swimming lessons and again, just becoming more physical, even at that age, you know, just starting her physical life. And, you know, that's when you realize this is the coolest profession ever. And uh, I would say that that was probably what really solidified the idea of, of, again, personal training wasn't really a career back then. But what I, it solidified for me was this is the idea of the exercise, helping people become more physically active probably working in a health club, uh, was the direction I was going to go in. And you've given us your age has just turned 60. So that tells me that's somewhere in the eighties. And I know at that time with health clubs, there wasn't really the boutique type of fitness facility that you've started a number of and worked in. This was more either larger or hospital based or medical based health clubs where, it was really unusual for people who weren't either athletes or undergoing some sort of cardiac rehab to be there. Is that correct? Well, the uh, it was actually, you know, in fact, I my first personal training client occurred when I was uh, in 1980, where I actually was working one on one with somebody 
uh, and uh, it it was at a health club. Uh, a, it was still at the university, and it was a university dormitory health club that I, I also managed. And uh, so there were, the health clubs were there. I, I mean, probably the first commercial gym I went to uh, was a bodybuilder's powerlifting gym that really, you know, there was nothing about decor. It was a, a pit and pretty much smelled like a locker room. And uh, so the, 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 the more attractive health clubs weren't quite there yet. It was the hardcore people. And, uh, well, we actually, you know what, uh, an interesting point is that as, as a student, I ended up teaching a weightlifting course uh, at the university because none of the professors had any experience with weightlifting. It was uh, an era when uh, Kenneth Cooper came out with the aerobics book and the aerobic way and all of the, the research and everything that was happening at the time was, was all about aerobics. And so all of my professors ran or cycled or did something else, but nobody weightlifted. Uh, the weightlifting had really gone gone away for the most part, other than those uh, those dungeons where you know the hardcore people lifted. The um, but as as I you know graduated and moved on, I ended up moving to Boston. Health clubs were uh, fairly established in the big city, you know, but they were big clubs. Actually, you know, I correct myself, they were either big clubs you know, multi-purpose clubs, or you would also find aerobic studios. That was also another time that was going on. And the studios were very bare bones. Uh, and interestingly enough, they, they were more similar to some of the studios that are popping up now. Uh, so it's really a resurgence of the smaller studio. And those studios would would teach classes, aerobics classes for the most part. They were all cardio, you know, high impact, low impact. Uh, really not. There's no strength based classes. They were all just just really about cardio, and uh, but they were just they, that's all they offered. You know, just the classes, and you would buy either buy the class or attend class card. They disappeared. Uh, probably later in the 80s, let's say late 80s probably, when clubs got, realized that they weren't, that the, cl that the classes were a really big deal and they started integrating the classes more in the larger clubs themselves. Whereas before they were more, they well, they may have been multi-purpose, you know, a pool, a, a basketball court or, or whatever else. They didn't really offer classes per se. But they, they pretty much ate up that section of the industry so that those private studios disappeared. And it's really, you know, you know, coming full circle now that people are tired of the big clubs and the boutique clubs have really, you know, made a resurgence. And I know probably you, like me, you see some of the latest movement trends such as the either the rebounding classes or the bounce classes or whatever they're called with the little mini tramps. You probably remember when those were part of the group exercise classes 30, 35 years ago. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I remember, you know, back in the day too, uh, I was teaching, teaching classes using a step, a wooden box step. 
um, before the whole step aerobics, step cardio uh, movement happened there too. So a lot of the old things are new again, you know, and they've been refined and made pretty and all that, you know, medicine balls, Indian clubs, all those things are uh, seeing a resurgence now, but those were around, you know, 30 to 50 years ago. The funny story about a year and a half ago, I got my first set of Indian clubs to kind of play around with since I was seeing some of it. And I mentioned it to my father who's over 80 and he goes, well, I remember using those in physical education classes in the 1940s. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so one of the th reasons I wanted to interview you is I think you probably have similar thoughts to what I do or what I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, as far as the personal training in the exercise field, you can never get too much education. It doesn't necessarily have to be a formal degree, but I know almost every conference I go to, I see you at. So it's pretty clear you're putting your money where your thoughts are. And I know from the alphabet soup that you have after your name, numerous certifications, including with uh, American College of Sports Medicine and the NSCA. One of the questions I wanted to ask you, given your background and since you said or have said, you know, I've been in the field quite a while. What are your thoughts on people who are coming into the profession without a background in some sort of a movement science or biological science? So they decide that they're going to do something because they like exercising and they think they're going to be good at that. What recommendations would you make to that person if it just isn't reasonable for them to go back to school and get a degree? Well, you know, that's an interesting point because it's an ongoing debate. Uh, and and I, I actually say debate because it can get kind of heated. Um, there are a lot of trainers out there who's, who think that there are too many trainers out there there that aren't worth the money. Um, and, you know, well, they need everybody needs to have a degree and must have a degree and they're pushing for that and then licensure and everything else. And I've known some, you know, some wonderfully accredited you know, personal trainers who have been the worst, you know, in actual fact, couldn't relate to people, couldn't, couldn't, uh, pick up new clients. And even when they had them, they really just didn't know what they were doing. So, you know, the, the degree degrees are absolutely great, you know, but it's not a, if, you know, for me to hire a trainer, I don't, it's nice that they have a degree, but that's a, a starting point. And it's just like having a certification. You know, you, you want an accredited certification. That's great. That's a starting point. But one or the other, I mean, neither of them are uh, a guarantee that the person actually knows what they're doing. Uh, like you said, you know, what's their movement ed their movement education? You know, how do, do, can they move themselves? Uh, can they see how other people are moving? Can they distinguish between correct form and improper form? Uh, you, you'll see that all across the board, no matter what they have studied. So uh, back to what do, you, what do you want them to have? Well, experience, you know, in the field is absolutely uh, essential. And depending on the the collegiate program, I've seen many colleges that have no hands-on and I've seen a couple that have had some really nice hands-on programs. So it really, if you get it in college, great. That's the best case scenario where you're getting your, all your exercise science background, you're getting your movement background. Uh, and that's, that's tremendous. Uh, if you feel like you're missing out on that, you, 
what you should be doing is hooking up with a club or, you know, it could be uh, a boutique studio. Uh, you want to make sure that whoever club wise or boutique studio wise, they're reputable that, you know, they are, have some kind of notoriety and then you want to use find a mentor, you know, shadow, uh, or, you know, go to, you know, even actually even physical therapy, you can, you know, try to shadow a, a physical therapist, uh, watch what they do, learn from what they do, you know, and it's not necessarily looking for a paid position. It, it's looking to gain knowledge. So, you know, do, do volunteer work if that's what it takes. But uh, you need to get some hands on. You need to get your opportunity to work with different different types of people. Uh some, you know, uh, trainers will will immediately, actually almost all trainers, which is really odd, most trainers will come out of their college if they're looking for personal training and they all want to work with athletes. You know, <laughs> who do you want to work with? Athletes, you know, professional athletes even. And, you know, so it's like, you know, the strength coaches who want the big university, you know, you, you only, there are only so many jobs out there. Um, and the likelihood of, of somebody working with high-end athletes, you know, that's not where your meat and potatoes is going to be. I mean, yeah, okay, that's great to have. But you also haven't experienced what you can do for other people. You know, uh, it, it, well, it's funny, you know, because I hadn't thought about it until just this moment as I was telling you the story about the cardiac rehab and, and what a joy that was to watch the progress there. Uh, I don't know, you know. It's too long ago. I don't know who I would have said was my ideal client, but obviously I, I enjoyed the senior market at that point. Uh, and most of what I do these days is I do a lot of post rehab, which includes a lot of seniors and, uh, and people who are really uh, not exercise proficient. They're novices. Uh, I'd say that's the, that is a, it's what we do best. My wife and I work, uh, open a, a studio together and, uh, the both for both of us, that's the type of thing we do best. Uh, we have athletes. Uh, I have a couple of high school athletes I'm working with right now, but that's, you know, I don't, I don't put that out there that I'm some kind of high school athlete, you know, coach superstar. Cause there are a lot of people who do that better than I do. But, you know, what we do really well are the people who are novices and uh, seniors and or coming off of injuries. Uh, so I for most people, you don't know what you're going to be best at until you experience a bunch of different types. And then you'll find what you really you know, this is what I enjoy. This is what I love. This is where I want to spend my time. But, you know, that there's always that rote thing. And it, we, everybody was an athlete. You know, most personal trainers were athletes growing up and um, they want to work with athletes. And you need to go further and deeper with that to, to find out who you want to be working with. And then you have to getting back to the original question, you have to have an ability to see and correct and teach movement. And I want to step a few, a few steps or a few years back kind of building on that. You mentioned that you were a high school and college athlete and ended up in a university setting in cardiac rehab. Although clearly if you were a high school or college athlete, I'm assuming you had some resistance training background. 
when you moved to Boston and you kind of transitioned into neophyte personal trainer or recognizing that there was a niche for that, how did you take that jump? Because I know at that point in time, that's about the time that I was somewhere in my college career without giving my age, although it's a, a little bit younger than you, but not that much. How did you get the recognition or realize, okay, this is something that I can do as a career. I can make a living at it. And here you are 30 plus years later, still at it. Um, the, you know, uh, in my credentials, if you're my bio, you'll note that I've been managing health clubs almost as long as I've been personal training. And it's, and that's really because the, when I started, uh, you, you might be a floor trainer, but you know, you didn't really charge money for it. You know, you, you got paid an hourly wage to work on the floor, help people out as it went. And there really wasn't the, uh, they're going to pay for this one-on-one scenario. Um, so at the same time, I, I got into management early. And so I was manager and floor, you know, I was a fitness, been a fitness director forever. And uh, so I was doing multiple jobs within the health club to fit that, you know, you're, you have a full-time job kind of scenario. Um, there, as we discovered, uh, that mm-hmm. you actually could, you know, people would pay extra money to actually have that, that one-on-one attention. Uh, I was, you know, there, there were few people that had my background and I would end up hiring people and training them to be trainers and, you know, then hiring, you know, then they would work for me. What I found out that was really kind of interesting and, and a, quite a lesson for me was as they were going through this, I was thinking, you know, they, they could charge what they wanted uh, was kind of the deal. And I, in my head, had always said, well, you know, I mean, we all know this and, and you know, personal trainers, uh, people will pay a little bit for this. And so I charged one price. And then I realized that these people I was teaching from scratch were charging a lot more than I was and getting it and realizing that, you know, okay, something's wrong with this picture. And it was really that I didn't value it. it I didn't value it as much as uh, the people would, uh, I guess. it was. Well, you know, you have to believe you, that, you're, that you're worth what you're charging. And for a lot of personal trainers, even today, uh, don't justify what they charge. Or, you know, say the cl- health club charges $70 an hour for personal training. You'll have some of the personal trainers in there who just don't believe that it's worth $70 an hour. And when you don't believe that, it's really hard to sell that too, to, to clients. Um, Jumping back to to when I became aware of that, I going well. If I can charge more money, I, this this could actually be a living as opposed to, you know, just something you're doing on the side. You know, when you're getting, uh, I, I can't remember what I what I first got, but uh, Bob Giordano, who was uh, the CEO of Town Sports International, uh, who one of the largest health club chains in the in the country. He at the time had said, you know, I started, he started as a trainer and he was only getting eight bucks an hour. And that's probably around the same ballpark of what I would get per hour. 
And, uh, and so that you, at a certain point you realize, okay, now I'm making 25 an hour. I'm making more and going, okay, I don't need to have another job. I can actually make a career just as a personal trainer. And I think that's, that's probably the, the big realization. I, I always worked in the management too, because I love that end of it. But, uh, that was when you realize it, it is a career and, uh, I, I've just never stopped. And how did you transition from management of large clubs to, I know that, uh, at, I think at the time I first met you with just probably 10 or 15 years ago, you were involved with smaller clubs to transitioning to having your own personal training businesses. Well, this is honestly, this is the first brick and mortar that we've owned. Uh, before that I, you know, I was living in New York city. Uh, I, I, while working as a manager and while working at, you know, corporately, I actually worked corporately for town sports international too. Uh, the, uh, I also had my own side business. I, I, uh, you know, would go to people's homes and train people in their homes and their offices. And, and so I, I always had another business going that kind of thing going, uh, and, or I worked out of clubs, a lot of clubs back in the day, uh, would allow, I mean, they didn't really know how to manage personal trainers and so that they just sort of opened their doors. And, and if you were a member, you could go ahead and train people and they just sort of didn't care. Uh, so, I, I mean, my business is prior to, you know, th- uh, our own place right now. Uh, prior to that, never involved owning a building or owning, owning a space. It involved uh, just working out of other spaces. And I think what makes it interesting with you is I know you've worked in Boston, as you said, in New York City, and you're in a in Maine, which pretty much every town, even the cities in Maine, are relatively small. And now you're in another relatively small town, such as Easton. So I think somebody who's listening to this, it is possible to do what you do, even in relatively small areas. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the uh, Well, you know, we moved, you know, I, I actually grew up in Maine. And uh, went to the University of Maine, graduated there, and left for Boston, and swore never to go back to Maine. Just, you know, just too rural, too cold. You know, not going to do it. So I ended up. Uh, I was in Boston for five years. Moved to Manhattan. Lived there for fifteen years. Met my wife. Uh, we had two kids, and then trying to raise, trying to figure out how to raise kids in Manhattan was a stumper for us. Uh, and uh, so we actually ended up moving to where. The majority of our uh, relatives were, which was back in Maine. So we lived there uh, up until mm, two and a half years ago, and uh, and then moved to Easton, Pennsylvania. But the so we went we I went from Maine to Boston to New York City, and then moved from Manhattan to Belfast, Maine. Population, you know, seven thousand people, uh, and realized, okay, that may have been too small. Even though I actually, I not only, I mean, I had a, a good clientele there, and I had uh, one client in particular who was a fairly wealthy. We were on the coast of Maine, so you had some wealthy individuals who actually would uh, was willing to pay full salary just to keep me in the area. But it was a little too. Uh, 
isolated, you know, intellectually, you know, intellectual stimulation. You just want to go, okay, this is really, really small. So we, we were more from a life perspective, wanted to get into a little bit more urban area. And we moved to Southern Maine at that point, uh, where I ended up as a fitness director at a club and personal trainer and uh, ended up staying there for about 12 years. But, uh, and that was a reasonably big club, but the population of the town was only uh, 17,000 there. So it was only 10,000 more than that first place. Uh, and we moved here to Eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, uh, and the population here is 10,000 more. So we're now at, we're at, at the big number of 27,000 in the city. So, yeah, I mean, very small to, you know, medium size to, you know, of course, Manhattan, Boston, all that stuff. Uh, and in every place people need, you know, what changes really is what the market will bear for pricing. Now, in, when I left New York City, uh, what is it? Uh, maybe 17 years ago, 17, 12, uh, maybe 15 years ago. Uh, no, about 17. We left 2001, so 16 years ago. But the, anyway, what I was charging 125 an hour there, and my current price here is 65 an hour, 15 years, 16 years later. So you would think my price would go up, but you, you have to charge what the market will bear, you know, and uh, so you can make a living. Uh, you can make a, a good living at pretty much anywhere. You know, you just realize that the the cost of living in New York City is also that much higher and the cost of living in smaller towns is that much lower. So it's all a relative thing. Uh, and you know that that pricing will change, but the, but the career is still there if you if you look at it, work it, and you know want it that badly. We're talking with we're talking with Mark Nutting, who is the owner of Jiva Fitness. He's given it. I'm sorry, Jiva. I think I <laughs> I think I warned you at the beginning that I would mispronounce it. So Jiva Fitness. Jiva, yeah. And I apologize for that, but he's no he's given a, a good background on how somebody literally starts with a personal training career that they weren't expecting. I want to ask you uh, just a couple more questions for this part of the first part of the interview. When we come back in two weeks, I want to explore more your recommendations and ideas for how somebody can get set up in the business and advice that you wish you'd known both when you first started working in Boston and even when you moved on to New York. But I know the way that I first became aware of you was through your activity in the National Strength and Conditioning Association. And it's very common. I've been in the field long enough to know that whether you're an athletic trainer or a physical therapist or a personal trainer or a strength coach, the number of members of an organization who are very, very involved and give back either through writing articles, which you've done, presenting at conferences, which you've done or serving on committees, which you've also done, is relatively small. I know the NSCA, for example, has over 50,000 members, and I would be surprised if more than 10% actually volunteer and give back. So what was it that made you make the decision to not only make a career of personal training, but make the realization of, I'm going to be active in my professional organizations and attempt to present, move on to writing and serving on committees? Uh, interesting question. Uh, the first time I presented at a conference was 
probably 1979 or uh, before I graduated college, uh, I was taken to an American College of Sports Medicine regional conference, and I actually did a, a, a presentation on weightlifting. And uh, that was my first taste into that the uh, presenting at a conference, actually going to a conference. And the uh, I, then for ma many years, I, I didn't uh, go to conferences and everything and uh, went through, was doing the work. I think when I started again, it was uh, much, much later. I, you know, went on, I, I got certified by American College of Sports Medicine and then went to an American College of Sports Medicine conference, very scientific, not that, you know, never, never intending on getting involved in, in it too much, uh, just really sitting back and, and learning. And then it came to, uh, actually it was the NSCA when I switched my focus more onto the functional end of things and really what the NSCA was doing, uh, I looked into just seeing how I can get involved. And uh, the NSCA was very accepting of, you know, you want to help us? <laughs> yeah, please do. Yes, yes, please. And I just, I like being involved in those things. I, I think that's probably something I've done all my life. I mean, I, I, you know, everything from high school, I was, you know, student council and all that stuff. So, I, you know, it's not unusual for me to want to be involved in things. Uh, the, it, it's a, it, it, with the NSCA, it was very easy to get involved. And, you know, the, the, because the NSCA, unlike most organizations, has, uh, has, state, has a chapter in every state, uh, you can start right at the local level and do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And then, you know, as regional and then, you know, national stuff. Um, and I actually started off, I don't know, I, I, I got involved first in the NSA with the uh, personal trainer special interest group. It's probably how I first got really volunteering it with the NSA. But when we made that move from New York City to to Maine, I became aware that Maine did not have a, a state director. So I was like, okay, you know, can I be the state director? And, and they said, yes, you can. Uh, so I started, became the Maine state director. I was the director for six years. Uh, I went on to become the Northeast Regional Coordinator for six years. But through that whole time, the idea of organizing clinics and conferences and bringing on speakers and speaking myself and and uh, there's such a camaraderie with people in an organization. Uh, and it's it's a joy to be able to be involved with an organization that really gets off on the information. I mean, it's, it's a great I mean, if I didn't go to conferences, my, my brain would probably explode from, you know, or implode from lack of input you know they're just that it's the dialogues you have the networking you do at the conferences that makes it all fun uh the volunteering is just you know you're supporting somebody who's giving to you and i got so much out of the nsca that you know i've i've volunteered in a lot of capacities i've run for the board of directors three times now 
although yet to, to actually get on the board of directors. Uh, so it's just, you know, you find it how rewarding it is to be part of an organization. And that's where the volunteering comes in. I know, like you, Mark, I've been a three-time board of director candidate and yet to win also. I imagine you feel the same way I do. The fact that I was selected is not as good as winning, but still very appreciative. And I know one of the things when I was first asked to run for the board that I realized what makes the NSCA and some of the other organizations so great is the people. You know, it's not the fact that, well, I have this certification, which is beneficial, but as you alluded to, you can go to a conference and actually talk to a variety of people that maybe you're not going to come across in your day-to-day career life. And that just expands your knowledge base and gives you more ideas for more things. Well, I mean, as you said uh, before we actually started the interview and we were talking, you know, if, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And it's, it's really those opportunities to, to stretch your current knowledge base and just go, oh, wow, or not even stretch it, but sometimes realize you're wrong. And, you know, that if you don't keep up on the science of, of what's going on currently, you know, a lot of what we believed was was the way things are, uh, you know, I mean, I can think nutritionally, particularly, you know, there are a lot of things we used to believe that have just have been proven wrong since then. And if you weren't paying attention, you'd still be preaching fallacies. And so it, it's if you didn't go there and, and stretch and 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 listen and and grow, um, you just wouldn't be at the top of your game. We've been talking to Mark Nutting. Mark is the owner of Jiva Fitness in Easton, Pennsylvania. He has been in the field 37 years. When we come back in two weeks, I want to start out by talking to him about his upcoming book, The Business of Personal Training. I think he's given us uh, some great background on how you can progress in personal training, the importance of having mentors, the importance of having experience with a variety of people. And I think really something that's a take-home message is to understand who your market is, which is going to influence who you can get as clients, as well as how much you can charge. Mark, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to Moving to Live, and I'm looking forward to talking to you again in two weeks. Great. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.